to be in the arena of a living oneness with God. And that's a, a kind of a fact, a theological statement people in, in this room have been celebrating for 30 and 40 years. We've also said to be in Christ is to be in the arena of personal freedom. It was freedom for which Christ set us free, the freedom to be who he created us to be and function as he intended for us to function with God as our source. We've just finished up a session that said to be in Christ is to be in the arena of personal transformation. God is ever fashioning and conditioning us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything about this is personal. If there's any takeaway I would love for people to have from these events, we're not just spouting concepts or spewing principles or formulas or theologies. Everything about this is about the person of Jesus Christ and our nourishment, if you will, of a love affair. In fact, almost everything we are talking about are nothing but the consequences of a nourished love affair with God. Uh, you probably don't have to break all these things down when that is obviously working in us. But even though all of these things are not personal, in this last session I want us to understand something about being in Christ is to be in the arena of interpersonal participation. It's very personal, but it's not individualistic. Again, it's not me and my own little private salvation contract with God. And I hope you get along well, and I hope you get what I've gotten, and I'll see you on the other side in Beulah Land, but this is about me and my God. We can't ever afford to go there. None of the things we've talked about are designed by God to be experienced or expressed in isolation from other people. We were baptized into Christ in the exact same moment we were baptized into the body of Christ. We were swept up into a new world, the realm of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and their fearless love, and we love to celebrate that. Listen to me, we were swept up into a new family at the same moment. And too many of the verses that we individualize in the New Testament are for the body of Christ. The you, that is spoken of by Paul so many times is rarely the singular you. It's mostly y'all. <laughs> or for you New Yorkers, you-ins. Yeah. All right? It's for you-ins. It, it, it's for more than just a few of us. So to be in Christ is to be immersed into a family. It's to be immersed into a participatory community of interpersonal oneness. In fact... You may or may not be shocked to find that there is no use of the word saint in the singular in the New Testament. Only place is where Paul says, greet every saint, and obviously that implies everybody in the room, but every other instance it's in the plural, because we are not a saint unto ourselves. We are saints, our holy ones together in Christ. It's easy to lose that perspective. If you get a revelation of Christ living in you, and now you're a saint of the Most High God, and He can't take that from you, His only option is to distort, to pervert that. And He's going to want to isolate you as a saint, us, and them who don't know what we know. You follow my line of thinking? And we've got to be on guard against His schemes. He is a divisive spirit, but the Spirit of Christ is not. We are immediately immersed into a world of fellowship with God, but also into fellowship with everybody who belongs to God. 
We are called to experience the life of God for our own sakes. It's take, God takes great joy in creating us with the capacity to receive His life and have eternal fellowship with Him, but not just for our own sakes, for the sake of others around us. This is when the life does flow, when we refuse to keep it unto ourselves. So the problem of living together in community is twofold. First of all, there's a problem of fear. <clears throat> Precisely the problem is overcoming fear. And in the body of Christ, we're being led and taught by the Spirit to love other people out of the fears that would keep them all wrapped up in themselves. And overcoming the problem of fear in any Christian community is the premier problem as far as I'm concerned. It's also, though, a problem of faith. And it's a little bit of a different kind of faith, and I know faith has its proper object in God the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that makes all faith in one sense the same. But here's the faith that I'm talking about that I'm afraid some of us are losing or lost. You want to have community? I don't care if it's in an institutional church, a mega church, in your apartment, uh, in a coffee shop somewhere. I, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sharing life together in common with those who have the uncommon life of the Son of God in them. Then you and I have got to have faith in what God can do for others. I think too many of us have been talked out of that faith. We believe what God can do for us. We've seen the difference. And now we've had such difficult and sometimes negatively painful experiences with trying to share our good news with other people that the devil has talked us out of our confidence in what God can do for other people. And our tendency is to kind of give up and walk away and hold everybody at arm's length. And so we need to overcome this loss of confidence in Christ concerning other people. So when we are in Christ, we are practicing the presence of God. And that's a lovely concept. And I know I'm not a fan of the language, but I love the idea. Because after Pentecost, you don't hear much talk about the presence of God. It's the person of God. But they can be used interchangeably. And we're learning how to do that in the all things of life, not just in a 30-minute devotional moment to start our day. But it's also about practicing the presence of people. We've got groups all over the country that are not too shabby at practicing the presence of God. I want to know where the people are who are learning to practice the presence of people. I don't think we fully grasp not I but Christ until we're grasping not I but you. And this is what would put us in that danger zone of becoming those petrified forests of union life trees. Where we get our doctrine nailed down and we're confident about what God can do for us. And we go over in the corner somewhere and harden our hearts to people who don't know what we know. If you and I are in Christ, self for selfness has been replaced with self for others. Self-rule has been overtaken by the rule of love. Everything that we've received freely now is to be freely put in the service of other people. It's not to keep for ourselves. If we come to meetings like this for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years and celebrate these wonderful truths and testify together about the difference God's made in our lives and go back home 
And all we see are people who are not good enough for us to hang out with. We haven't gotten anything. We've been tricked again for another year. This is not something that is just about us. And to get a sense of what all this means, let's go back and look just in overhead terms about what God has done for us in Christ. Let's think about this first. In Christ, God made room for us in His family, didn't He? I hope you haven't gotten over that. When Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the way, my Father is going to make room for you in our family. He did this intentionally when, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.19, we were strangers, we were aliens, we were outsiders, we were far away, so far off, we couldn't get to God from there. And He made room for us. In Christ, He came and laid down His life while we were there in that condition to open a door into His family. Listen, Jesus did not lay down His life for His friends. He laid down His life for His enemies. Greater love is no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. That's as far as a man can go. And we might lay down our lives for people who agree with us doctrinally and do the things we want them done. Where are those people who are laying down their lives for their adversaries? That's the life inside of you and me. This is what it means to be in union with Christ. While we were wrong, will you listen to me carefully? Wrongness in another person is no excuse for God to keep His distance. Aren't you glad? We were wrong. And wrongness was no excuse for God to keep His distance. God made room for us in His family. What else did He do? We've talked about it all weekend. He's accepted us. I hope you know that means more than He tolerates us. There's an awful lot of theology out there, the teaching that God's just tolerating us. And He has to look at us through something called Jesus in order to tolerate us. No. He has fully accepted us, embraced us into a living oneness. No fear of rejection, shame, condemnation. He said in John 14, 3, I'm receiving, accepting you into myself. There's a just as I amness there that touches our want to. It's the acceptance we were graced by God that touches our want to. Hopefully, if something has been transformed or changed in you from this time last year, it's not because of some law hanging over your head and what you ought to do lest God slay you. But it's because of the want to in your heart due to the loving acceptance of God who always has our best interest in mind. What else has God done for us in Christ? He's been good to us. He's been generous with us. I think sometimes we get so involved in deep theological and systematic attempts to make it all put together and sound acceptable to other people. We forget these basics. God made room for us in His family. He's accepted us in the Beloved. And God is good to us. He's generous. We're talking about a God who can't keep anything good to Himself. That's the nature of the one now living in you and me. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins. Somebody wake up and say, praise God. He does not treat us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 10, if you need a reference. I don't think you do. You know in your heart what I'm talking about. That's not who we are. We don't treat others on the basis of their sins. We don't deal with them according to their iniquities. He deals with us according to our needs. Listen, one of the most disliked parables in the entire New Testament is the parable of that 11th hour worker who gets in by the skin of his teeth. That reveals how much the natural thinker dislikes and even detests grace. And none of us will ever appreciate the truth in that parable until we realize every single one of us are 11th hour workers. That was the point. It's not like, well, we got in this 20 years ago and we've learned all this stuff. When are you ever going to catch up? We're all 11th hour workers. None of us has earned anything. We were given what we needed. That speaks of the goodness and the generosity of God. Listen, people are dying and they're despairing for the lack of simple goodness in their lives. In Christ, what else has He done? God's spoken the truth to us in love. Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. In Christ, God says, this is everything that I have to say about myself. This is everything I have to say about my son. This is everything I have to say about God living in the man. This is everything I have to say in Christ. And it is this truth. God loves us enough to tell us and give us the truth, no matter what costs he may have to incur. What else did God do for us in Christ? Again, again, it's a bottomless list, but let's stop here. He makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, He always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, the gap between us and God is without measure. Forget sinfulness just for a minute. He's uncreated and infinite. We're created and finite. You can't even measure the gap between us. So there's no way we could get to God, close that gap, bridge that gulf. If somebody does not come from the uncreated and infinite realm and step into our finite and created dilemma, we're without hope. This is the compelling of God's love. Because only an eternal Savior can take us into the eternal family of God. Only a forever Savior can forever save. This interceding life of Christ is that poured out life. The life that addresses needs behind faults. We needed saving, didn't we? We needed forgiveness. We needed someone to do for ourselves what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so Christ came in person for us. So, in Christ, you can go on to the next one there, Bob, I think. We see the truth of what it means to be God. I think Frank read it last night when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus said it different ways many times in the New Testament. But what do we see about God in Jesus Christ? God's hospitable. He's accepting. He's good. He's truthful. He's intercessory. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? 
So if this is the truth of what it means to be God, this is also the truth of what it means to be people in union with God. This is who we are. We are hospitable and accepting and good and truthful and intercessory. This is when the life again of the Son of God flows in us. So He's not again ever asking us, asking anything out of us. He's never asking for hospitality. He's never asking for sacrifice. He's never asking for goodness or generosity. He's never asking for speaking the truth in love. He's never asking anything out of us He's not already put into us. He's not sending us into a situation in which He Himself is not already adequate for. And as the body of Christ, we are told to be. We are told we are visible expressions of the invisible nature and character of God. So... As the body of Christ, what do we do? We better learn how to make room for strangers. In the Bible, it's called hospitableness every now and then, or hospitality. Whether you're thinking of a hospital where we care for injured and sick people, or hospice, the long-term, in-stage-of-life kind of care that requires tremendous amounts of patience and endurance, doesn't it? This is necessary in the church. We're learning to welcome and make room for strangers, people that we don't know, people that are not like us, people that don't believe what we believe, people who are in the wrong. Can we say it again? Wrongness is no excuse to keep our distance from people. Wrongness is no excuse to keep our distance from people. We make room. Christ makes room in us. A safe place for people to bring their humanity. A home. A home is where you get to be. Homes where you get to be stupid. Homes where you get to sit around your underwear. (laughs) The early church didn't have any buildings. It didn't have any hospitals. There were very few inns. There were not many people of means. The life of the early church depended upon hospitality. Guess what? Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We, in Christ, learn to welcome people into our space. We welcome them into our day. We welcome them into our love. We welcome them into our worship. Listen, we welcome them into our theology. We don't beat them into it. We don't shame them into it. We don't condescendingly teach them what they don't know. We make room for the stranger. The one that's overlooked, the left out, the unwanted. Jesus learned how to make the empty spots inviting. He's teaching us how to give gifts of undivided attention and see it that people don't walk, fall through the cracks. 
And it's always the one God sends, not the ones you get to pick and choose. That's cultural man-made hospitality. I decide the invitation list, and I even determine who sits by whom. That's hospitality in our world today. In God's world, in God's economy, it is making room for whomever God sends. He picks and chooses, not the ones we necessarily like. God made room for us in Christ, now we make room for others. In Christ, we accept one another. Again, that just as I amness about it. I know, I know, there are some people who are so contrary, if you throw them in the river, they float upstream. But those are still the kind of people that God sends to us, that He says, look, I know your natural preferences for these kind of people are gone, but my acceptance in you, greater is my acceptance in you. Greater. These are the people that press us into that place. And oh, by the way, those people you float in the river and they float upstream, such were some of you. Such were some of us, lest we forget that. Listen, in Christ, grace flows over all the boundaries. It flows over the boundary of fair. It flows over the boundary of what works and doesn't work. You and I don't do what acceptance because it works. We do acceptance because God, the love of God doesn't leave us any other choice. It flows over the boundaries of what is merited and earned by other people. And listen to me carefully. It flows over the boundaries of what's comfortable to your and my flesh. Too many of us have used union life, exchange life doctrine to get back into a comfort zone and hold everybody else that we're uncomfortable with at arm's length. The love of God puts up with a lot in Steve Pettit that is not yet of Jesus. The love of God in you and me can put up with a lot of stuff that is not like Jesus in other people. They don't have to conform to our expectations. They don't have to applaud every time we share our good news. In fact, there's a whole chapter in the Bible in Romans chapter 14 about this kind of acceptance because I think there may not be any other body sin that Christians are more vulnerable to than making our own convictions the standard by which we judge other people. It's forbidden. And if in the New Testament it was about meat that's sacrificed to idols, in our day it may be about your own personal theology. But we do not have permission from God to judge other people critically through the lens of our own personal convictions and make those personal convictions the standard by which we determine whether we're going to hang out with people or not. Paul made it clear in that chapter, it doesn't do a bit of good to be proud of your boundaries. Well, I've done some stuff in my life, but at least I've never done that. It doesn't do a bit of good. It's not consistent with the accepting grace of Christ. If you and I are proud of our liberties, I can't believe those people. They think if they drink a beer, they're going to hell. <laughs> That's not the accepting grace of Jesus coming out of you and me. We are not permitted to judge other people along those lines. 
I am again not trying to play the prophet or be the bad guy and spoil the party, but too many of us have let the enemy even come in and pervert our understanding of grace, and we are exercising a contemptuous grace. We, like Peter, have gotten this revelation of God on high with the powers that be, and we want to build a little tabernacle on our personal mountain and look down on people who don't experience what we've experienced. And Jesus said, we're not going to have any of that around here. Anything I gave you on this mountaintop is to take right back down into the valley where people are. Get up, move, let's go. We have the courage, we have the patience in Christ to live with the imperfection of other people. And again, we have the confidence in His transformative power. Will you listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5? I love this. Just this first part even. I've read Thessalonians many times, but just a couple of weeks ago, this jumped out at me. Second, second, excuse me, Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3, 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Remember I talked about how easy it is to lose confidence in God concerning other people? Oh, those people, they're never going to change. They're never going to wake up. They're never going to appreciate what they have in Jesus. That's not where Paul's coming from at this point. I'm not saying there's not ever a time to wipe the dust off your feet and move on. But we wipe the dust off way too early in too many circumstances. Paul says we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. And now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Listen, our courage, our patience, our confidence when they don't have any is what often encourages other people. Believing God for them in things they can't yet believe God for. This is the kind of confidence that will set you free to stop fussing at the old theology and the old man that still seems to be alive in our brothers and sisters in Christ and start speaking to the new man. Speaking the truth. Again, I'm not suggesting everybody's going to be applauded. There are not going to be that many people that say, well, thank you for pointing that out to me. But listen, brothers and sisters, we've got to return back to confidence in a God who can restore and encourage other people. It's not up to me. The pressure is not on me. This is is what allows us to celebrate diversity even in the body of Christ and treat every person God sends into our lives as non-disposable, as irreplaceable. This is where you begin to shed that user kind of mentality we've picked up in this world for other people, that people are only meaningful to the degree that they're useful to my agenda and buy into my convictions. These are the very agents God is using to strike that out of us. God has accepted us in Christ, now we accept others. Next, in Christ, we're good to others, we're generous, we're kind. And I know people will want to say, well, only God is good. Right, right, I know, but He's in you and you're in Him. But listen to Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says to them. Straight up. Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. You are. I am because the good one dwells in us. 
Jesus went about doing good. Acts 10.38, one of the very first Bible verses some of us memorized in Sunday school as little children. Jesus went about doing good. Guess what? He still does. It's as simple as that some days. Moving through our community, taking the goodness that God is giving out and giving it away. Whether people treat it respectfully or stomp on it or appreciate it, it doesn't matter. It's not our goodness. The minute you and I get offended over it, I think we've kind of slipped into thinking, that was my goodness you just stomped on. No, it's His goodness. His kindness coming through us. What is it about a, a, a good person? You know, I'm not talking just about human goodness, but what is it about a good person that's so arresting when you meet one? I think when we meet good people and think they're good people, they're, they're present with you. That's harder and harder to find in our world. But that's nothing new. Before those things, you're in conversation with somebody and they're always looking over your shoulder. I wonder if there's anybody else in the room more interesting than this person. <laughs> I'm not going to get anything out of this guy. I've got to go find somebody else. A good person is present with you. Present. Face to face. In your interest. In your realm. They don't treat you as though you're invisible in the, in the way. In fact, the Bible is loaded with these kind of verses. 1 John 4.20, the same thing said five times. If a man says he loves God, yet ignores, disregards, shows contempt for, and fails to care for his brother, the man is lying. Now, he may not be lying in the sense that he doesn't really love God, even though he says he does. That could be true. But he, I think John means more, he's lying by the way he's treating this guy. If you say you love God, and I think John means you do, but you ignore people and you look at them as in the way of your agenda and you don't become fully present to them in the moment when you're with them, you're lying somewhere. You're telling a lie with your behavior. That is not Jesus coming out of you and me. But they also give presents and mostly stuff that doesn't come from stores. Good people will give you a listening ear. Good people give you a shoulder to cry on. They will give you gifts of undivided attention. That's the goodness of Jesus, isn't it? Listen, God's good and generous to us in Christ. Now we're good and generous to other people. Fourthly, we're agents of God's loving truth. You're getting the pattern here. I don't need to go into too many details. But you know, you and I may have this truth of the exchange life, of union life, of Christ in me life, of my righteousness in Christ. We may have this kind of truth, but we do not have permission to speak the truth because it's true. Ephesians 4.15 says we speak the truth in love. We speak that truth when it's in the best interest of another person to hear it. And I don't know, with some people in my life, I'm still looking for that moment after 20-some years. <laughs> you love, you accept, you're present, you give gifts. But I haven't spoken truth yet into their realm for whatever reason. I don't think it's fear on my part. And it's certainly not because I have the gift of mercy. Nobody's ever accused me of that. <laughs> it's just... 
that the merciful one has not let me. We speak the truth in love. Listen to me. I know some of us, you get this truth and man, it just burns in your heart. And you, you want a pulpit, you want a Sunday school class, you want to cash in all your social debts and get everybody who owes you anything into your house and sit down and listen to a Bible study on this stuff. But the objective is not to charge other people with a crime. The objective is to see that they're changed by the truth of God. When we step into our congregations with both union guns blazing... Don't be surprised we're not welcomed back. There is a time and a point for the prophetic voice. That's not what I'm talking about at this moment. I'm talking about who we are as the body of Christ. Truth that's condescending, truth that's contemptuous or mean-spirited rarely contributes to the atmosphere that makes it easy for possible, as easy as possible for people to hear the still small voice of God. All they hear is the accusations and the contempt and the condescendedness in their brains. Listen, we've got to learn to sit together in love under the truth of God. Saying what God says to each other in love. We feed one another the bread of life. We quench one another's thirst with living waters. But not forcefully so. We do not force feed them. We don't overpower them and judgmentally teach them. But we're speaking the truth to one another so that our church can grow up and be healthy. And Paul in Ephesians, always keeps those ideas of truth and love together because love without truth is like trying to do surgery with a rubber knife. You just don't get anything done. But truth without love is like trying to do surgery with a sledgehammer or an axe. It's rarely successful. He came and spoke the truth in love to us. Now we speak the truth in love to one another. And finally this, in Christ we're instruments of redemption. Each of us is there for the other. I know we all know John 3.16. We need to come to grips with 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. Now we ought, I know that offends some of you people in the room, any ought or should, but argue with God. We ought then to lay down our lives for one another. It's the natural expression, the natural, natural correlation of being in Christ, not I, but you. There are no New Testament ought-tos that are not preceded by New Testament want-tos. In the depths, you and I want to see other people come into the truth. We want to see them loved into the family of God. We want to see them grow up. But we're learning to do it as instruments of redemption. We intercede and embrace one another in the sacrificial love of God rather than sitting them down and trying to teach them concepts, point out their flaws, magnify their errors, grumble and complain about what they don't know, take swings toward people who are living differently than us without offering the solution of the gospel. Listen, that's a loss of confidence in God's ability to change someone, when I put the pressure on me. 
And there's time for every one of us to intercede, put up a holy fight. You grab onto God with one hand and this person that doesn't know the truth with the other and you keep putting up this holy fight in the presence of God until the two come together as one. That's essentially what Jesus has done for us. And it looks like this. You get this every year. You've got it for 28 years in a row. This year it's at the very tail end. But it's Oswald Chambers' line. God never allows us to see another person at fault so that we may be judgmental or critical. If He lets us see another person at fault, it's so that we might intercede. When God wants to move His loving truth from point A to point B, He is looking for someone who will lay their life down, and that life becomes the road that God Himself travels. Laying down our lives for the brethren. Not throwing rocks at the brethren. Not judgmentally criticizing the brethren. Laying down our lives for the brethren. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to be in fellowship with Him. And I'm going to press this a little bit and use just a little bit of hyperbole and include everybody in this. This may not have been every single person's experience. But when we look at the things we've been talking about, these five different things, and again, it's just a representative and not an exhaustive list. My experience, I'll just stop and say in almost 100% of the time, my experience is that every single new believer believed what I've just told you the day they got saved. And they had to be tricked out of it. They had to be talked out of it. I rarely go any place in this country to any kind of church, Anglican church, charismatic church, Baptist church, non-denominational church, it doesn't matter. I rarely go anywhere that somebody doesn't come up to me when I'm finished and they say to me this very line, verbatim, quote, unquote, I used to believe that. I mean, think about it. When you first got saved, you believed your sins were forgiven, didn't you? And you left that place wherever it was knowing you were accepted by God. And you wanted to love everybody, didn't you? I mean, you really did. You just wanted to, you wanted to love everybody. You had to be tricked out of it. You had to be talked out of it. A spirit of antichrist entered in. If you'll read John, he'll say the spirit of antichrist is not out here. He is among us. He is a religious spirit who wants the glory, wants the attention, wants to be worshipped, and wants to be served. He is a counterfeit to Christ. A spirit of antichrist. We allowed. Don't blame your pastor. Don't blame the church you grew up in. That ain't going to change a thing in your life or mine. They may have been wrong, but blame doesn't make any of it go away. And Jesus said directly to us, You see to it that no man misleads you. The burden of proof is on the hearer. I know there are verses in there too about how dangerous it is to lead people astray. We'll let God deal with them. But you see to it that nobody misleads you, but we were misled. 
But this is who Jesus is. This is what He does. This is who we are in Him. And as His body, we're the vehicles, the carriers, the unique, one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-repeated-again expressions of His character and nature. Don't ever let another person's wrongness keep you at a distance from what God has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we know we have just barely scratched the surface this weekend of what it means to be in Jesus Christ. And yet you have taken us to the depths where we could have never gone on our own to see who you are and where you are and bring back to our remembrance all the glorious things you have freely given us. Would you please keep them in our conscious awareness in the days to come? So that when we're confronted with someone who thinks differently than we do, who practices their faith in ways opposite of ours, who behaves contrary to you and your truth, Would you keep us so full of your compassion, your grace, your mercy, and your loving truth that we see our options in that moment and present ourselves to you in readiness for you to be and to do what only you can be and do. As you bring that one particular person, that one place, that one painful relationship, that one hurtful memory, that one messy church, to our awareness right now, we are ready to use the gift of our holy imagination to see you going before us already making a righteous way. So that when we step into it, when we come face to face with that person, when the enemy slams that memory against us at a vulnerable moment, we will be armed and ready with truth of the one who is our very life. Father, would you give a missionary spirit in some way, shape, or form to every one of us in this room so that we are not tricked into going back with a contemptuous grace, with a private individual perspective on our Christianity, and bring us afresh and new into the realities of what it means to be your body here together on planet Earth. Greater are you in us than whatever may be outside of us, in our past or in our future. May you heal the wounds of those who have been hurt in such places. 
so that we ourselves may become wounded healers to others experiencing that same kind of hurt. And Father, would you open our eyes to any particular place where we have let the wrongness of another put an unloving distance between us. And may we be very sensitive to those places where you have called for that distance. We know you're adequate for these things. We give you praise and thanksgiving for them before they ever unfold. And we trust you are in the midst of each of these places and people and things to glorify yourself and bring the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ himself into our experience. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.